Today, we are all about the madness, March Madness, except without the gambling and most definitely without the basketball. Then, then how are you a March Madness show? Well, we are going to discuss some of the biggest comic book events, big character innovations, because they happened during the month of March. Oh, baby, comic books has a hollowed uh, list of accomplishments that happened during the month of March, not a summer blockbuster month. No, this is the month of March, the March that we are in right now. We got big Marvel concepts, big DC concepts, big movie concepts, all that happened in the month of March. Get ready to join the madness on an all-new edition of Observations. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. Now, if this is your first observations, and I say this because we are getting all sorts of new listeners all the time. I appreciate expanding the audience so much, but I want to tell you something. You're like, what? What is a observation anyway? I'm, I'm going to tell you really quickly. Many people have come to comic book superheroes through comic book movies. Maybe, maybe you've come to them through a comic book streaming show. Maybe it's The Boys. Maybe it's Invincible. Maybe you got on the Disney Plus and you saw all the, you know, Marvel Legacy films, the Marvel Legacy cartoons, and it's all through, you know, video filmed formats. Okay. So many of you have indeed come to comics through movies and streaming and these libraries, these film libraries. But see, I experienced the, the, the worlds of Marvel and DC and beyond through comic books coming off a of spinner rack as, as young as 1974, when I was seven years old, uh, and, and, and began consuming them. And I've covered from, from day one of this podcast, which goes back three years to, um, that wonderful pandemic season, uh, the spring of 2020. And I, and I chronicled, chronicled with you, my walk, my journey, how I met these characters, how I fell in love with them, how it, I made it my absolute life's work to be a part of this, to contribute, to make comics, to write them, draw them, create them, produce them, publish them. And I'm so fortunate that I have, and I get to share this time with you. But again, you or your family, and in my case, like with my family, like I've watched my kids. I have absolutely 100% watched my kids, my family come to uh, this world, even though their dad was doing it their, their entire youth. Uh, case in point, my oldest son, 22 years old, uh, after finally viewing the Invincible cartoon on Amazon, the amazing Invincible cartoon uh, from, from the minds of Robert Kirkman, along with Corey Walker and Ryan Otley. Uh, once that aired and those episodes aired, he's like, Dad, now I know why all those Invincible comics were on our house all those years. You know, I only got excited about meeting Robert Kirkman because I had already read Invincible. And this is going back 20 years and he was a kid. And, and, and we, we met each other, uh, maybe 2002, 2003, uh, Chicago comic-con, but that, that's, that, that my introduction to Invincible was through a comic book almost 17, 18 years before it would be a streaming show. But see, my son now understands that's why those volumes are there, those trade paperbacks, those hardcovers, those, those individual issues. And, and so my son, my family, my, my sons, my daughter, they have come to these films in the same way that so many of you have. And what we do here at Rob Observations is I just have the very best time walking you through the history of comic books as I have known them. I certainly can't tell you about the first time Fantastic Four hit the stands. I wasn't born. I was five years away from existing, you know, but I can share with you, you know, my love of comics since. And, and it turns out I was in the like 
the earliest possible phase of Marvel still. I thought, oh man, I'm I'm a decade behind, but I but now you look back and and I was 50 years ahead of so many people. But but that is what we do here on Rob Observations. We we walk together, walk hand in hand. I'm sharing you a lot of the history from interviews, from magazines, from uh, out of print books with Im- ridiculous forewords that, that that reveal all manner of different information as to what was going on at the time. Uh, there, I did an episode early on, season one, about Star Wars, and and in a foreword to the original 1977 pocketbook that collected the comic books, and it's not even in color; it's black and white, uh, a cheaper format. But Stanley gives you his recollection of how his editor-in-chief at the time had to walk him through and talk him into doing this license with Star Wars. That's the kind of stuff that we bring here. I, it is my pleasure to discuss it with all of you. And and and, uh, and and that's what we do each and every episode on Rob Observations. Today's episode of Rob Observations is going to combine the world of comic books and some film with, uh, with a, a, a subject that I think could not be more timely. As I am recording this, it is the beginning of March. We have Entered March, and 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 you can see all over the country. I love invoking this because it's an old timey, an old timey saying. My parents used to say it too. March roars in like a lion, out like a lamb. I'm not sure if that's true every time, but March is certainly roaring in like a lion all across the country with all the crazy weather that we're seeing, crazy temperatures here in California where where I live, crazy rain. Uh, just like. It's so funny seeing the transplants, people from London and, uh, and Australia that I know, uh, people from New York, people from the Midwest, and they're like, wait, well, I didn't know California got this cold. Well, it doesn't, but every once in a while, we, we get these, these conditions. That, that, again, sometimes we're not breaking records because those records go even back further into the 70s, the 60s, just like these comic books we're discussing today. But not only is it March roaring in like a lion, but it is a time of year that is celebrated called March Madness. We are in the throes of March Madness, which if you're a sports head, okay, and definitely if, if you're a gambler, you, you know of March Madness. There is no two uh, institutions that celebrate more, March Madness more than uh, college basketball and, and all of college basketball, bracketology. All these universities that are going to compete to see who can, you know, at the end, who can be the one, the Highlander. There can only be one, okay? Um, and, and and then there's Las Vegas, who is counting on you putting putting all your bets, filling out your brackets, watching those brackets shatter, watching them cash in on all of your mistakes. This is a huge time of year from gambling for um, college basketball, and I, I, I said two, I should have said three, three different factions celebrate this time of year, and that is the networks. The television networks who who benefit from all of the eyeballs, all of the skyrocketing ratings that are about to um, you know, descend upon them. So so March Madness is here. So I thought it was only uh, appropriate, I- incredibly uh, relevant that we discuss comic books in March that have defined the age of comic books. Th- this entire age, there have been huge, giant staples. That came in the month of March. And we're going to talk about them today. You think, oh wait, they, they, they save everything for the summer. Just like movies, you know, comic books are very summer focused. Summer events. Big summer, you know, uh, uh, annuals. Big summer launches. Uh, taking, taking part in the idea that, that, that when the vacation months are out, that you'll be seeking out even more 
of your favorite comic book heroes and you'll be going to your comic store even more so they put even better stuff there. It is not an accident that the best-selling comic books of all time were released in the summer. X-Men number one, X-Force number one, Spider-Man number one. Okay, Marvel's top books were released in the summer. Summer, spring, but but those are June month. June is generally, you know, it straddles summer, spring, but you got it. You know what I'm talking about here. Marvel and DC have both always uh, very much been summer-centric, but you're going to see today in, in today's list that uh, the month of March has tremendous. You won't even believe it. You're going to be like, are you serious, Liefeld? I am serious. You, I am dropping science. If I take a pen out and I write a list, then I did my research. A lot of the times I'm just going, you know, going from the dome here, going for, from, 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 from mostly memory. There's only been one time in, uh, in recent memory that I had a podcast where I'm like, whoa, I got that date way wrong. And I had to go back and re-record and ask my uh, sound technician Hello, Reed. Great guy. To splice in the correction because I had made a uh, an, an, an error, which I hate making, but I went back. I hunted down the dates here. And speaking of dates, it's going to inform our very first uh, list of March Madness again. So this is, uh, don't gamble. There, there's nothing here that you can take to Vegas and, and give to your bookie, okay? Save that for all the mistakes you're about to make uh, with, with your picks. Now, if you're, just while we're at it, I have been a UCLA Bruin fan my whole life, which means that I absolutely hate the USC Trojans of Southern California, okay? And if you're a Trojan, I apologize, but you already know, knew that about me. You knew that about me. Um, you know, just quick, since we're talking sports, UCLA Bruins, college team my whole life since I was a teenager. I love the Bruins, the Bruins of Westwood. Uh, obviously, UCLA has, has, has produced so many incredible mega NBA superstars, and you know I'm an NBA honk, whether it's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, whether it's um, in recent years. Uh, Kevin Love, you know Russell Westbrook, um, Drew Holiday. Uh, the, the place is, uh, uh, you know, it, it's an NBA factory, and, and I'm leaving out all manner of of terrific names. It is it is literally a stellar pillar of of basketball, and and uh, and so the UCLA Bruins basketball is is my thing. I love the Lakers. I love the Rams. I love the Dodgers. Those are my basically covers my main you know my my my, my main. Uh, categories uh, I, in hockey, I'll root for whoever's you know doing well. Kings, Ducks don't really have a team, okay? Um, teams I despise: Trojans, Clippers. You know, write it down, pin it up. I, I'm sure that'll I, I will draw great ire from 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 many of you going forward. But that's 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 my sports teams. That's who I root for. So yeah, am I rooting for the UCLA Bruins in in March Madness? I will be. But in the meantime, refocusing on comic books, March was exceptionally relevant. You have no idea how relevant. But given, uh, we're going to start with an honorable mention, that if indeed the the facts around this were to be supported, which they're not, the the myth about this is not supported by the facts. This is a book that had a cover date uh, of of, of March. Now, you guys, the, the, the cover dates on your books you know, don't mean they came out in that month. Uh, case in point, people always, you know, you know, retailers all over America know that they got X-Force number one in June. They got X-Force number one in June. That's when it arrived in your, in your stores and for your retailers to put out. It was a kickoff of the summer of 1990. You were absolutely on your way to your comic store to get X-Force number one in June, but the cover says August. It's cover dated August. 
But, and this is the best way because so many of you are alive and going, oh yeah, no, it was June. It was June. I was there in June buying X-Force retailers who, and many of them who had just started their stop, their, their shops, their couple open in Orange County around that time. They remember very clearly it was the summer kickoff. Mar- Marvel kicked it off in the summer. Okay. The Jim Lee X-Men number one came out late August, early September, but that's not what the cover date says. So the cover date on on X, X-Force number one says August. It was out in stores in June. The cover date is generally, it was, it was meant to when, you, when to sell by or return, and then you would tear the covers off. It is an old practice of magazines. It's not necessarily adhered to anymore. But if the date, now People Magazine is different. They actually print the damn date on there, like the specific day, like February 19th. Um, and some, some other magazines have adopted that too. But in comic books, in periodicals, that cover date does not reflect when it was on sale the on sale date is the on sale date is generally 3 months past as is the case with this honorable march mention now if it was in march if it was on sale in march this would be our number 1 this would leap from honorable mention to number 1 but it was in fact on sale in december of uh, 1962 because again um i'll tell you in preparation for this, ooh, I'm giving away all my prep plans. It's it's so scary. I'm giving away all my preparation plans to you today. In, in preparation for this, um, I went to uh, I I went to my Marvel. I have I have some great Marvel calendars. I I don't know if you can get a hold of them. I bought them as a kid. I rebought a few at conventions recently. But Marvel and DC both did calendars. And every month, every day of every month, they would have something comic book centric. A birthday for a creator. Um, a birthday for a character, a publication, you know, uh, 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 celebration date. And, uh, and so, so I went and I, and I, uh, I consulted, I consulted my, um, my Marvel calendar and it said March the 5th was the premiere of Amazing Spider-Man number one. Now, you know, that's not his first appearance. Amazing Fantasy is his first appearance, but, uh, Amazing Spider-Man then launched off the popularity that he was experiencing, that the character was experiencing in Amazing Fantasy. Amazing Spider-Man number one had a cover date of March 1963. I am looking at it now. No, I do not own it. It is a cover date of March, right above the 12 cents, okay? Uh, And uh, let me tell you something. It was on sale December 10th. You were, if if you were, you know, in, in in a... Market before Christmas in December in the United States of America, you saw Spider-Man number one, the amazing Spider-Man number one. Now, does it carry a cover date? It does. It has March on it. But in fact, history will record that December 10th, 1962 is when the world got its own uh, Spider-Man comic book. Two great length Spider-Man thrillers. The Fantastic Four are looking up there as, as Spider-Man is, is outside the window or and, uh, you know, Looking in on them and the Fantastic Four think I'm trapped. They don't suspect my real power. The Chameleon Strikes. Great cover. Wish I owned one. I don't. Maybe you do. That is a December book. But because it has a cover date of March on it, we're squeezing it in because the March 1977, the 1977 Marvel calendar has it as being a, a birthday month for, for, for freaking Spider-Man. But it's not. That's not when it went on sale. And that's what we're here to do at Rob's Observation is we, we give you the receipts. We give you the dates. Now, continuing. So, so honorable mention, Spider-Man, the amazing Spider-Man number one, because it has a cover date of March, but in fact was on sale in, in uh, 
in, in, in December, which is technically Christmas. So it is the gift that gave twice. It gave at Christmas time in 1962. And then again in March 1963, where it's cover dated. Okay. See how we, we fudge that? We absolutely 100% fudge that uh, for, for, for today's for, <laughs> for today's podcast. So let's get to this list. There's five. There's five. A couple are going to surprise you. Some are you're going to be like, uh, whoa. Okay. Number five, I'm going to come in in 1981. This is seven months into a transformational run that literally transformed DC Comics. I have mentioned it early and often when George Perez and Marv Wolfman left Marvel Comics where they had produced Avengers stories, between them Avengers, Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, The Inhumans, Marvel 2-in-1, some X-Men. Marv and George were a powerhouse team, second only to Chris Claremont and John Byrne at Marvel. My sense is knowing this, they realized they could cross the streets and go be the number one team over at DC Comics. They were asked to revive the Teen Titans. Now, let me tell you something. I was buying the Teen Titans in 1978. The last of the relaunch uh, that they had attempted in the mid-70s was coming out. I bought every issue. I love the Teen Titans. The Teen Titans were even part of the Aquaman cartoon that was shown in uh, repeats as a kid. And it was Kid Flash, Speedy, uh, Robin, and Wonder Girl. So it was all all kind of the mini sidekicks, protégés uh, of these mighty heroes. So you had Aqualad, second to Aquaman, Speedy, second to Green Arrow, Robin, obviously the second to Batman, and Wonder Girl, the understudy of Wonder Woman. And they made a team called the Teen Titans. And they had a um, a, a very complicated publishing uh, history in that it was never, it never took, it never was like a book that was well-received no matter what they did, no matter how much they tried. And they tried all manner of different approaches. And in the 70s, they brought it back, expanded the roster a little, tried to tweak it. I bought each and every issue because I just default love those characters. It was a DC book that I really liked. But then uh, I think it was after the 50th anniversary issue because they picked up the numbering from the 60s. They just, when they say they brought it back, they just brought it back. They, they, they took it off ice, much the same that the X-Men had done when they did Giant Size X-Men number one that re, re, reignited the X-Men franchise and transformed it from, from Cyclops, Angel, Beast, Iceman, Angel into the X-Men that we know and love today. It's Colossus, Wolverine, Storm, Nightcrawler, that version. And then they segued, segued out of Giant Size X-Men number one back into the numbering that they had abandoned for three years because the X-Men went on ice existing only as a reprint book. If you didn't know that, you know that now bi-monthly reprint book to keep the X-Men name and trademark going. But when they came back out of Giant Giant Says X-Men number one, boom, X-Men number 94. It was kind of a cool thing. I wish we did more of that now instead of the relaunch, the relaunch, the relaunch. So the Titans came back and just re, 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 they kept the numbering uh, that that was going on where they had left it off after they stopped publishing it. So in, in 1976, 77, 78, they gave you these last breaths of, uh, of the Titans. And it didn't, it didn't take. So issue 52, 53, it's one of those two they announced in the letters page, this will be the last issue. Thank you for supporting us. And they turned the franchise off again. But the powers that be really wanted that book to work. They thought that there was something there. Marv Wolfman, George Perez crossed the street. They are asked to ignite the Titans once again. George is drawing the Justice League. That's the reason he is there to draw the Justice League. And he is drawing the Justice League. I can attest to the fact that I am grabbing his Teen Titan. I'm sorry, his Justice League issues at the time he he arrived uh earlier than anticipated because the long st- the long time long standing uh veteran penciler of the justice league dick dillon 
passed away. Dick Dillon had done all the Justice Leagues that I had been buying since 1974. And now he had passed away. George came in on a Justice League, Justice Society, New Gods crossover. And when did those crossovers occur? They occurred every summer. You want to talk again about summer themes. They thought this is where, this is where the action is at. Summer, 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 summer. Every summer, the Justice Society would team up with the Justice League, and now they were adding different elements. Earlier, a couple of years prior, in 1977, they had dealt and teamed up with the Legion of Superheroes, adding that third component. Later on, after this episode with George Perez, later on, they would team up with the All-Star Squadron. They were always adding another facet to this team-up to make it more special and to excite the fans, but it always happened during the summer. And George came in to finish the arc, and it was very exciting to see George draw not just the Justice League, but the Justice Society and the New Gods. And he talks about it at length that this is why he came to DC. He wanted to do their flagship book because he had had such a great, uh, you know, legacy history and reception in doing Marvel's flagship superhero title, The Avengers. But DC intervened and said, hey, we want you to try out the Teen Titans. Can you, re- can you do to this book, basically, what they did to X-Men? George and Marv stepped up to the plate. They gave you Cyborg, Starfire. They, they changed Beast Boy to Changeling. And they gave you Raven, they gave you all new villains, they gave you Trigon, they took you on this whirlwind tour, and by March of 1981, you are at issue 7. Prior to this, again, they have battled uh, alien, uh, an alien invading force, they have battled the Justice League, they have battled a, uh, 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 basically a demonic, you know, interdimensional demigod named Trigon. Uh, they, they have battled all manner of d- different. Uh, Doctor Light had assembled a new superhero, uh, supervillain team. I believe uh, that their name escapes me. Nonetheless, uh, they battled him in issue six. In, in issue um, issue six, when they issue seven, when they arrived uh, back from this conflict. So here's what I uh, to, to, to borrow a line from Vanilla Ice: say stop collaborate and listen okay thank you ice ice baby so it was the fearsome five i i, I just I, I i had to get this name right the fearsome five there's the fatal five there's all these different five um villains but issue seven they arrived back from their battle with trigon and they battled dr light and his fearsome five five individual badass villains that put the titans through their paces and gave us an all-out action-filled uh episode it is issue eight. It is the eighth issue, not the seventh issue. The eighth issue of the Teen Titans that really changed everything. It came out March 5th, 1981. It's called A Day in the Lives. A Day in the Lives. A Day in the Lives found uh, the Titans arriving home, basically now no longer threatened by a supervillain. Is there a little action? Yeah, Raven stops a, uh, you know, stops a bank, a bank robbery with her, you know, soul self. Her, her astral projected Raven. Uh, but mostly it's them hanging out. It's Kid Flash, Wally West, hanging out with his parents, talking about the burden of being a superhero. It's uh, Wonder Girl Donna Troy with her, uh, with her boyfriend, soon to be fiance, Terry. Uh, it's Starfire getting ready to go do a photo shoot because she's going to make money here on Earth being a supermodel because especially the way George drew her, she was extremely uh, tall, long, voluptuous. So, so they gave her a supermodel angle where she would be photographed. All of this occurs in a very down to earth, very, very slowed down episode called a day in the lives. No costume superhero 
you know, uh, uh, threaten them. No giant throwdown in the streets. You'd be like, but Rob, this is anti to what you say goes on in those books you love in the seventies with, with, with the Marvel, you know, formula of open with action, slow it down, close with action. You're right. That's why this is on the list. A day in the lives for better or for worse. Uh, because in their case, it was for better because the fans loved it. The fans loved a slowdown. We had been put through the absolute action packed ringer, you know, from, from, from issue one, issue two had, had Deathstroke and his son, uh, you know, who, who battled, who, who, who battled the Titans. You, you were introduced to the hive. Um, again, it was all building towards this big con- conflict with Trigon. You had, uh, you had the, the fearsome, did I, did I, did I call him the fearsome five? Is that, do I need to go back and, 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 and re- <laughs> reacquaint myself once again? Um, but it was just action, action, action. They get back from defeating Trigon in another dimension. They're attacked by, by Dr. Light and his cronies. Once again, you don't, you know, the word crony cannot be used um, enough in, in a sentence. But the Fearsome Five fa- fa- faced off against the Titans twice in the span of seven issues. They were giving us action. They were putting these characters through their paces. And then we slow it down and we get a day in the lives where again, uh, everything that I, that I told you that, that I had become accustomed to enjoying in a comic book, Marv and George dialed it down. And the big reaction was how much people loved it. I mean, again, you got photo shoots, you got a, a slight bank robbery being deterred with Raven's soul self. Um, we've have an interlude with a villain to come a puppeteer type. Uh, but, but you've got, you know, uh, cyborg and and changeling hanging out um uh, uh cyborg visiting his neighborhood you know dealing with the fact that he's he's this you know he he very much and they're borrowing kind of a page from the uh stanley jack kirby this man this monster idea that that where, where ben Grimm hated being the thing and hated how he was disfigured similar to how cyborg hated being disfigured um very slow issue. Wally West in a multi-page interlude with his parents talking about the burdens of, of, of the life that he's leading. Uh, again, uh, you know, uh, uh, Donna Troy acting as a photographer, taking shots of uh, Coriander, a.k.a. Starfire, for this potential photo shoot. And then we end with the puppet. Um, it's a very slowed down, very character driven, very uh, soap opera-y kind of interlude. And it went over huge with fans. This is about the time when I'm starting to to go and hang out at the comic book store more. This is the time when I'm starting to go and hang out at the comic conventions more. And this was the buzzy book. And then when I'd go to those conventions and I'd see George Perez, who, as I told you, would come out to Southern California twice a year. He loved it out here. He did all manner of comic stores, comic conventions. George openly said, if there's an invitation for me to go make an appearance in Southern California, I like to get out of New York. So he would take that flight. This is before he uh, relocated to, to Florida. He is uh, many years a New York, um, a, a New York resident, uh, Connecticut, you know, outside of New York. And he loved flying to New- to, to Southern California, especially like lo and behold, Orange County. He did, uh, the land of Oz and Oz a couple times, which was a, uh, a, a comic shop that was located in Fountain Valley right before Huntington Beach. It was a great excursion. Each and every time he went there, I made sure I was in line. And back then, that's when the lines were 10 or 12 people. And you got a lot of time. You got a lot of FaceTime. George would offer to draw you something. There were commissions you could get on site. He brought some original artwork. He'd sign your comics. He would tell you about the future. Marv Wolfman relocated to Los Angeles. So he was at comic stores all over, conventions, the creation cons that were at Disneyland Hotel with George and Marv and everybody. And so I would get to personally interact with them and they would t- tell you what a big deal this was, that that's when DC knew we have a giant hit. The Titans had become their number one selling book. The Titans had become DC's top selling book, jumping over Batman, everything. 
and it was now the rage. It was the buzz. It was competing with the X-Men on the charts, and they took a big swing, slowed everything down, allowed you to get to know every character in these much quieter interludes, and fans loved it, and fans went nuts for it, and that's when they knew they had something going on, and it signaled to the rest of the industry, you too can slow your comics down and have your characters walk around and just talk, and maybe if you had George Perez and Marv Wolfman pulling it off, you would get the same results. Key there. It was key. <laughs> George is good at this. Marv is good at this. They did it excellently. Teen Titans number eight, released on March 5th, 1981, is our number five in March Madness, a day in the lives changed the game for the comics industry. You can slow it down. Again, that's why I say better or worse. Some guys don't know how to do it well. They just know, oh, I can slow it down too. I don't have to draw. I don't have to write big action sequences. I can take my, my foot off the pedal only if you're as good at it as these guys. And that is what places Titans number eight on our, number five on our list. Now, number four is going to be a title I rarely discuss here, but it was a big deal at the time. It was part of the reboot. It's another DC title. It's a part of the reboot uh, that DC was experiencing post-crisis on Infinite Earths. Their giant, mega-successful, tremendously celebrated. When I tell you that Crisis on Infinite Earths was like the spike the ball moment for all crossover events, and, I mean, we're looking at 40 years ago that that happened, just shy of 40. I mean, you guys, um, this is a big deal. This is a tremendous big deal in the way that it was executed. And by who? By Marv and George. But it's not a cri- an issue of, of, of crisis on Infinite Earths that I'm about to share with you. Uh, it, is, it is not an issue of crisis on Infinite Earths. Um, it is, in fact, one of the spinoff books. And, and it, it involves a character I just invoked. And I think this was a huge swing, but it really redefined the character as you see now. The character who is entering into his last season on the CW. I believe there's been nine seasons. You know, forgive me if I'm off. But uh, the Flash, the Flash, has has was launched in his own title, featuring Wally West as the Flash. On what do you know? March fifth, nineteen eighty seven. I'm going to head into a, a little bit of spoiler territory here. If you aren't aware of the events of Crisis on Infinite Earths, which, which was meant to transform the DC universe, who had all multiple, ironically, now as we celebrate multiple, multiple dimensions, multiple Earths, multiversity, the multiverse, this is, they, they want to shut it down. Earth, Earth 2, Earth X, Earth S, all these different Earths. That, that DC had floating around, which is how you got a Justice Society with an older Batman, Superman, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman alongside the Justice League with the modern, current, you know, younger versions that we were accustomed to. They had all manner of different Earths. Crisis shut them all down and realigned all the histories on one Earth. It was semi-controversial, but no one, no one denies that the actual execution of the 12 issues, of which two were double-sized, were exceptional. And by the end of that, well, in the middle of that, the shocker was that uh, the original, uh, the, the, the very first Flash, uh, again, I, I, wanna, I, wanna <laughs> I, I need to tell you, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> um, again, again, let's just, uh, let's just pump the brakes. If you haven't read Christ on Infinite Earths, Go read it, turn this off, come back, and then we can rejoin us. The rest of you, now that you've done that, 
a, a man named Barry Allen was the Flash growing up. Barry was uh, killed in crisis. It was a really, it was a surprise. They had kind of signaled that they were going to kill off Supergirl. Fandom knew that, but Flash, the, the very issue after, so you had two big, giant, momentous deaths, Supergirl and then Flash. And so Barry Allen, as the Flash was gone, so by the end of crisis, it, Wally West, who had been Kid Flash for all these years, decades, was going to don the proper Flash costume and replace Barry Allen. Well, in 1987, on March 5th, they launched The Flash Number 1. The writer was Mike Barron, who had burned up the independent scene with his work on two incredible independents that I have never discussed here on this show, because there's always room to get to did these down the, the, the road. It took me three years to get to Howard Chaikin and his amazing American flag. So forgive me for not saying Mike Barron more often. Mike Barron uh, was the, the breakout writer on Nexus and on The Badger, two incredible uh, independent breakout successes. He was paired with Steve Rude uh, for the, the bright shining um, essence that was Nexus that launched in a big giant black and white magazine format. First time I got it on the way home from the beach during the summer, my parents agreed to drop off at, I've already mentioned it, Land of Oz and Oz in Fountain Valley on Brookhurst. And boom, I'm like, what's this? What's this? I've never heard of this. It was a magazine style format. The, the, the way that I talk about the Planet of the Apes magazines, the Kung Fu magazines, the martial arts. Nexus bought it. Black and white was totally, completely won over by the futuristic, uh, you know, world, the character, the hero, and the art of Steve Rude coming alongside Mike Barron. Mike Barron was like, he, he, he was one of, like, like Bendis before Bendis, kind of an early Tarantino mold. He had some really great uh, dialogue. He had a great ear for people talking and dialogue and interaction. And he had great big ideas. Well, they pulled him in off his big indie success to take over this relaunch of The Flash, Flash number one. Featuring Wally Weston in now, you know, the prominent, you know, iconic role. He's no longer Kid Flash, he's Flash. But here's the deal. Mike Barron had done a bunch of interviews. He had really done a good job teasing us with what's to come. And he said, I'm going to establish a couple things. And, and one of the things that happens is, what do you do when you have super speed, you know, and you can run as fast as the Flash? He said, he's going to become a delivery man. He's going to make like deliveries like FedEx, like, like UPS, but they're same day. And he's going to charge an exorbitant amount of money to make these deliveries. And we're going to get this right out the gate. And it's like, wow. So his, his side hustle, Flash is going to have a side hustle, a gig that pays him money and he's going to become a delivery man. Now this comes about out of necessity due to an, an, an organ uh, transplant that absolutely has to be uh, uh, implemented and, and transported uh, in, in a set amount of time. So, so this is what kind of kicks it all off. And this is what gives, uh, <clears throat> this is what kind of plants the seed, uh, with, 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 uh, <clears throat> with Wally West, he has to deliver a heart transplant and, and, you know, with his spe super speed, he can get it from point A to point B in record time. So, uh, in the meantime, you know, he does, he does, he does heroics. And he battles uh, uh, the, the the World Liberation Army, and and there's a great uh, there there there's a great cliffhanger that I don't, I don't want to spoil at the end, but I love the villain, 
and it is uh, a villain that I had known in All-Star Comics featuring the Justice Society in the early 70s. There was a character called Vandal Savage, 1976. 1975, he was a big character battling these Justice Society characters who took place, whose adventures did take place on Earth, too. They made it very clear, because that's where you got your Echo of Supergirl, which was Power Girl, okay? And you got the older Green Lantern and the older, you know, uh, Batman and the older Flash. And uh, Vandal Savage was this immortal character. So now he's popping up at the end of Flash number one. It's a great, fantastic introduction. But the other thing, including the delivery service that, 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 that Wally would start dancing with, this means with which to make a living, which I thought was really creative in its approach. But here's the number one. He introduced the fact that when Wally runs real fast and he exerts his body in this way, this physicality, that he has to eat a ton of food and he eats burgers and fries and milkshakes to restore the calories. This is that kind of 1987, whoa, wow, you know, thinking application that as a young uh, I'm, I'm, as, as I'm reading this, I'm 18 years old and I'm like, this is incredible. Th- this is, you know, incredible what he's, th- these interviews, like what's to come, you know? And then when the flash arrives on March 5th and I actually pick up the comic and I, I see the, you know, the implications, I see the applications of how Mike Barron is going to depict this and who's drawing this is a, is a gentleman named Butch Geist, Jackson Geist, he of uh, X-Men Micronauts fame. I, I talk about that in Forbidden Fruits, in comics that can't be reprinted. Jackson Geis, he was calling himself Butch Geis back then, uh, picked up drawing the Micronauts shortly after Michael Golden's seminal run and became a fan favorite. So much so that he got an X-Men Micronauts miniseries out of it. He was uh, a celebrated cover artist uh, in, in regards to his interiors as well, but Marvel got him to DC, got him to cross the street, pair with Mike Barron, leave Marvel behind and do this seminal Flash series. And again, Flash, you know, is seen gulping down extra amounts of food after exerting himself and telling his friends, you guys, you know, this, this, this takes its toll on me. This is, this, I burn a lot of calories being the Flash. These are the new ideas and the new applications that Mike Barron brought to the Flash. The, hey, I can make a side hustle. I can deliver stuff. Hey, I've never said this before. You know, Barry Allen is really never hit this on the nose as much as I am, but I got to consume so many more calories. The love affair that fans have had with Wally West's Flash began here with Mike Barron and everyone else would follow. Just to expand what I'm saying by that, by everyone else who follows, just understand that if you came and to to love Wally West and and, and his depiction and the depiction of the Flash by uh, Mark Wade or by Jeff Johns, who famously had a great run on this book, you're going to go back and read those Mike Barons and go, it all started right here. These ideas, the relationships, the humor, this entire approach. Um, you want to talk about sourcing. I'm sourcing you right now because the flash changed. The flash changed. Released March 5th, 1987. March freaking madness continues with our number four book. Again, Mike Barron walked literally i know the pun here so that mark wade and jeff johns could run check this out you will be amazed it was a big deal it was a buzzy book by the time the summer convention season rolled around people were talking about the work that mike Barron had done transforming wally west um his initiative his characteristics the application of his powers in the flash so here's here's the deal now you know it's the final four in, in, in March Madness. And, and here we've got, we've got really the final three. We've got the top three as we roll through this March Madness list. We already did an honorable mention 
because obviously Amazing Spider-Man was in December, but cover dated March. So we fit that in. Just you had to get that in there. We did the big transformative, slow it down. Everyone will love you even more. Teen Titans number eight released released in March of 1981. We jumped and gave uh, gave the number four ranking to Flash March 5th, 1987. But here's the deal. Uh, <clears throat> th- th- this is a big damn deal. And this is not necessarily a comic book, but it changed cinema. I told you we were going to fit a film in here because March Madness can, extends to comic books here because it is, in fact, a comic book film. Now, you'll go back and you'll see that, again, what are we talking about? Summer, summer, summer. The only thing that really mattered in March for the longest time was, again, basketball. And it's only grown bigger and bigger over the last four decades. March Madness, the tournament. And uh, summer was, spring and summer were the big you know, opportunities, the big windows to launch films. What had been happening since the 90s was that they were pushing back that May uh, release date to like the first week of May to kick off the summer because they wanted to get their summer movies in theaters. They wanted you to to capitalize on your hype for it immediately. They, they, they wanted to capitalize on your hype for it, the hype that they created. So you had movies, it used to be Memorial Day kicked off the summer weekend. Then it got pushed back to, you know, the second week of May, the first week of May. Marvel has now, with their summer slate, and, and as, you, as has Universal, you've seen Fast and the Furious films, and you've seen, uh, you know, Marvel movies open in late April. You know, we're pushing the envelope here because we want to get those in as fast as we can. And with today's model, with all of the different multiplexes, with the thousands of screens that you can go open these movies on, spring kept spring and summer kept kept getting pushed back. The summer kickoff movie season was really happening in late spring. So and earlier and earlier. But March was nobody's home for a blockbuster. It was it was believed that January, February, and March, this is carrying through eighties, nineties. 2000s it was a dumping ground it's where you kind of put a uh it's where you put like a a, maybe a tim allen john travolta comedy or where you put like maybe a horror film you certainly didn't put a blockbuster they did not know what they had with this bad boy and uh on march 9th 2007 i've talked of it a couple times but uh my wife was going out of town she was going out of town, up to the Bay Area, up to San Francisco with a, a, a group of women from our church for a conference. So it was just me and the kids. Now, my mom and my sister had informed me, hey, just like every weekend, we're going to be there. We'll, we'll watch the kids. They love my kids. And so I knew on Friday and Saturday, I was getting babysitting from my mom and my sister who would break up the days, Friday and Saturday. You guys, if you don't know how much I was blessed during that period, both my wife and I, because it was whether she was gone or not. And, and the, I mean, sometimes we're like, we have to go out tonight. We can't stay home because part of the deal was my mom and my sister wanted us out of the house. We want our own time with Luke and Chase and Olivia. Get the hell out of the house. <laughs> so this particular weekend, March 9th, I'm like, oh, cool. This cool new movie's coming out. I can't wait to see it. And basically in these months, uh, June and, and February and March, when I could get away, now mostly, most of the time, Marat must have been out of, time, out of town because I'm telling you, during this period, Marat and I would go see movies all the time. But this particular uh, weekend, I was going by myself to the seven o'clock showing at the Brea 12, uh, the AMC on Brea Boulevard. And, uh, and, and I, I was extremely excited, uh, to, to go see this movie. And I thought I'm going to walk right in and get a seat. You know, the, the, the ads had been out there. The, the, the hype was there, but when I walked to the theater, I parked my car and, and walked up at about six, 
you know, 620 to get my ticket. I'm like, what's this super long line coming out of the theater? Now, remember, there are no reserve seats. Nobody's, nobody's getting a reserve seat in 2007. No one's getting a reserve seat. That didn't exist. You didn't get to, you know, lock in your seat so you could walk in and skip all the previews. Okay. Th- that is only a product of the last decade. Okay. Certainly not, you know, good God, 17, 16 years ago. I go, what the crap? Am I even going to get a seat now? But I, I went, I, I, I stood in line. I, I could not believe how swole the theater was. And it was dates, you know, husbands, wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, girlfriends, uh, you know, singles like myself, wedged myself in. And I could not believe. And that's when I was like, whoa, you guys. And then I actually saw the freaking movie and it blew my mind off. And the movie is the adaptation of Frank Miller's 300, The Battle for Thermopylae. The battle of the three, the, the the story of the three hundred Spartans, which had had been out in the early late nineteen nineties, early two thousands, collected, uh, published by Dark Horse, by the eminently incredibly talented Frank Miller, and this was the beginning of Zack Snyder's super flex on mankind. I've talked about this. I've done two dedicated Zack Snyder episodes in twenty twenty one, which talk about why I love Zack so much and, 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 and what really won me over and it, and his, his reward for making the remake of George Romero's Dawn of the Dead into such a monster hit was that he was able to then adapt Frank Miller's graphic novel. Gerard Butler was not a superstar. This made Gerard Butler a superstar. Nobody in this movie was basically a box office champion. The concept was the box office champion, but it had been the industry was wary because I'm going to tell you right now, because again, I live in Southern California. My, all my friends work in the movie business. They're executives, they're producers, they're directors, they're writers. The sword and sandal uh, period of, of Hollywood had been, dial, had, had been kind of dialing down up until this moment. Gladiator was, was the impetus to kick it all off in the, in the summer of 2000. Nobody saw that coming. Oh my gosh. And then everyone moved to duplicate the success that, uh, that Ridley Scott had had. Uh, with his incredible vision, and really, it put Russell, you know, Russell Crowe on the map. Russell Crowe was an up-and-coming, you know, popular actor, but he became a superstar on the back of Gladiator and the work that he did with Ridley Scott and everybody, and all the wonderful uh, contributions. Because that that movie is just it's just brilliant. A couple of years later, we had Troy. You know, we had uh, Brad Pitt, Eric Banya, um, in a giant a giant studio production uh, featuring this epic myth and 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 it was it was quite a giant hit called troy i hope you saw it i mean come on brad pitt as achilles what are you missing out on not not only did it have a giant star at the helm with brad pitt uh wolfgang peterson was a big giant director uh the perfect storm uh had been a monster success for him a couple summers earlier with george clooney mark Wahlberg again based on a bestseller packed him in and and he got to do this giant big budget version of, you know, of Troy. And, and, and he brought it to uh, glorious life. Brian Cox from succession is fantastic. Everyone is great in Troy. I love it. Uh, it, it was another super flex on the, the sword and sandals at this time you're getting Spartacus, you know, is, is being greenlit and, and prepared to come to, to come to, to life on, on stars, all these sword and sandals, you know, concepts are are, are 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 taking flight but nobody sees 300 coming because again it doesn't have a real star that the theme the 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 concept of the of the 300 
is the star, the, the incredible artistic vision that uh, Frank Miller put forth in creating this comic book, which was not controversial when it came out. It was really the, the story of the 300 Spartans and their fight for survival. And in later years, it's been caught up uh, with all manner of, of controversy, some of which admittedly Frank Miller borrowed um, because some of the statements that he made were bold and, and in many cases misconstrued, but it created a separate narrative. But I am telling you, when the comic book came out, it was celebrated. It was printed in a landscape format. It, it is mostly double pagers. It's nothing shy of just incredibly inspirational, dynamic. Uh, it, it, is, it is a super flex by Frank Miller. And then Zack Snyder steps in. And they do this incredible green screen production with these incredible visuals where Zach is literally bringing Frank Miller's pages to life. But that Friday that I'm waiting in line, I, I know something's up. And, and I'm, I'm so excited about what I see, I, I've seen. I'm so excited about what Zach Snyder did with this graphic novel that I, I talked to my buddies. Their names were Jim. Their names, <laughs> their names were Royce. Their names were Brian. I said, you guys, we got to go see it. This is I, I, I babysitting on Saturday night. Let's go do it again. This time, Anaheim, Cinema City. I say, I buy all the tickets. I'll have them ready to go. You guys get there early. There's going to be a line. Sure enough, whoa, just like in Brea the night before, tons of crowds. Box office is reporting that 300 is absolutely overperforming. The weekend of March 9th, 300 would go on to put the March is safe for your blockbuster motif in motion as it opened to $70 million. Like, ah, $70 million. That's not a big deal. No, sure it is. Sure it is. As the time that I'm um, reading this off to you, it is March and Creed, the third Creed, directed by Michael B. Jordan, is going to open domestically to $56 million and people are doing dances in the streets and they're celebrating this as they should, as they should. But I am telling you, now go back to 2007. Let's travel back and let's go, whoa, $70 million for a, a you know, non-star vehicle, put Gerard Butler on the map, created his burning, you know, superstar status. Uh, this bad boy, this bad boy rocked Hollywood. They're like $70 million for that. That You know, it made back its budget and put it in profits that weekend. And obviously spawned a sequel. And then the show Spartacus would go on to reflect the visual components and 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 the representation that 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 was groundbreaking in 300. This put more juice when the sword and sandals were semi dying down, and just boom took off. And it was Zach's vision adapting Frank's transformative vision because nobody had heard of 300. People didn't have the 300 comic was not some you know giant bestseller. It was known. It was known. The the the, the themes were there. I've talked in an earlier episode how I got Frank to give me the license. I have to wedge this in there for 90 days. I tried to get, you know, uh, Tom Cruise to star because I had a relationship with Tom. Ironically, he did not want to die. That is a fact. Tom Cruise does not die in movies. And so and in, 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 uh, in the, the instance of 300, that's kind of not a negotiable position. But anyway, I had 300, I, I had 300, I had, I had 90 days to make something happen. Frank gave me that window. I was not able to get it, you know, across the finish line. And this is the summer, the fall of 2000, based on the success of Gladiator. I acted early. I contacted Frank. I contacted Frank's attorney. They gave me an agreement. It was 90 days. I tried to make it happen. But then this goes back into the cycle. It reemerges. Legendary Pictures, 
boom, giant monster movie. It didn't drop off the next weekend. It had a huge carry. It had a huge take. Uh, 300 released in March. Changed the way films are released. Now we get blockbusters in March with great regularity. Warners even did it two years later with with, uh, Zack Snyder's next comic book project, Watchmen. I mean, March became the date that you go, I can do blockbuster business here where it had not even been seen as conceivable. It was like, eh, it's kind of a dead period. They're going to save their money for the big late spring, early summer releases. No more. That's not happening anymore. Last year, the first weekend in March, The Batman was released to giant fanfare, huge box office. Right now, again, Creed. This month of March with Creed, with, 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 uh, with Scream, uh, all of these giant movies are being released that are going to do huge business in the month of March. It's like a summer month. That started 2007 with 300. There is, there is all the evidence to, to, to bear this one out. Prior to that, March was not seen as a blockbuster release. But with a comic book property and, and, and some extraordinary vision by Zack Snyder, adapting extraordinary vision by Frank Miller, they caught lightning in a, battle, in a bottle with this title. And it signaled that, that, that March is fertile. March's blockbuster, uh, 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 you know, is, 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 a, is, is, is blockbuster real estate for everyone to, to, uh, to exploit. Basically, if you build it, they will come in March started right here. That is our number three in our March madness. Number one and two were tough, but I had to bear it out that when all is said and done, and, and we'll get to it in a minute, number one is the character just has a bigger grip, a, a, a bigger um, reach globally, worldwide, with all age audiences. But number number two on our list was released March 2nd, 1982. It was part of a complete reboot of a beloved uh, uh, property that had kind of fallen on darker days. Hasbro wanted to, uh, you know, get back into the huge success of action figures uh, that, that Star Wars had experienced. And they gathered together. They rallied around the incredibly po- pro-military Ronald Reagan era, uh, uh, <clears throat> you know, patriotic era. Ronald Reagan, patriotism, military, uh, all were, I was, I was a teenager during this time. It was a constant. Uh, they rallied. They just, they decided we're going to reboot a, a license that had gone dormant. My childhood was the last time that this had been relevant. It, it, it came off the store shelves. It disappears. It was a brand I loved. I got the GI Joe with the Kung Fu grip. I got GI Joe with the Eagle eye. He had a freaking, you know, magnifying glass in his eye, the same way that the $6 million man doll had. But these GI Joes, which, which were big for years, were a top seller. Had uh, because of the Vietnam War and because of the resentment of the military in the late sixties, early seventies, their last gasp was to launch the GI Joe Adventure Team, and that's where you got uh, the Atomic Man uh, as part of GI Joe's posse of heroes that he 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 uh, you know collaborated with. You got uh, <laughs> you you got Bullet Man. I, I, I laugh when I say it because I put Bullet Man and I put the Atomic Man in my Snake Eyes reboot. And people are like, what's Lightfield doing creating these cra- crazy characters? I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You literally don't go further than back. 
you, you literally only start with the real American hero phase because these are not my characters. They're, they're part of G.I. Joe lore. By the way, Hasbro, IDW, everybody I worked with at the time loved that I was including those older characters, but the new characters were like, what is this? This, this isn't Scarlet. This isn't Destro. But I had a blast combining all of them uh, on kind of a bigger stage in my, in my Snake Eyes dead game, uh, which, which literally, as the days go by, is one of the favorite works of my entire career. But G.I. Joe was a big deal. I thought, you know, that a lot of advertising, a lot of shelf space, and then it was gone because I guess sales had really fallen. The adventure team wasn't enough to keep it going. Having G.I. Joe battle aliens from outer space, one called the intruder of which the toy I have on the shelf behind me, it's there all the time. If you watch my whatnot feeds, I, I, I put up my uh, G.I. Joe Kung Fu grip and it look on the cover. It says Kung Fu grip. Do not come with me with your, you know, cultural misappropriation shit that is on the box okay i am just repeating something from a time of a time uh the gi joes that i collected the kung fu grip the eagle eye it's the blurbs on now with kung fu grip and the kung fu grip is in a logo and had a cool rubber you could pull the hand back look not much of a kung fu grip it was just another way to sell gi joe i loved it they were 12 inch dolls multiple articulation but they went away and what happened now 1982 March 2nd, Marvel Comics debuted because they had been working behind the scenes with, for years with the illustrious, immensely talented Larry Hama, who had basically created the lion's share of these characters in coordination with the, the design of the new relaunch, which was going to have this super mega military flow to it. G.I. Joe, Real American Hero, double-sized, launched March 2nd, 1982, I was there at the comic store. I got that comic. I was so excited. It was on slick paper. It was double, you know, double-sized. The whole, you know, interesting aspect is because of the comic, they were able to, on the toy show, you know, I'm sorry, on the cartoon show, promote the comic book. And that is, uh, you know, part of the, they, they attribute that to part of the success, but I got to be honest, good comics kind of sell themselves. And G.I. Joe, number one, 1982, part of this massive reboot where you'd, you, you'd, you'd meet all these new characters, Duke, you know, um, Roadblock, Scarlet, uh, everybody, Cobra, Destro, um, Baroness, all along the way that the focus on Snake Eyes would continue over the issues from Goggles, eventually to Visor. You guys have been there. There, there are way, far too many characters to, to, uh, to discuss, but this is where it all happened. And the, and the thing is, retailers, while ordering fairly heavy, sold out of number one very quickly. Now, as you know, by the time your number one hits as a retailer, as a consumer, your retailer has already ordered issue three, possibly issue four. Issue two is, is already a decided issue. They've already put those orders in, and that's what Marvel is going to print from. As a matter of fact, they're probably printing issue two as issue one arrives. That's how it happens today. The big fervor was when issue two came out, retailers had not gone big on it. They, they were generous with number one, but thought that there would be a, a fairly uh, notable slide with issue two, and they didn't order it nearly as much as they had ordered the first issue. So when fans showed up for issue two, it, it was gone. Retailers were shocked. And, and the conventions that were happening shortly thereafter, because you know, after April, you're starting to hit those spring-summer conventions. Issue 2 was a big back wall book. It was the first time that I remember going, 
I don't have the money to afford that. I did not get there the opening weekend. I didn't. I did not get a GI Joe number two. I had to wait several, almost till the period between issue three and four until I saved up enough money to buy the back issue for like twenty five dollars. They were going for that much that fast. GI GI Joe two was one of those. Huh, man! If you're not there, that book goes up. It was the beginning of of the the hot comic book era for me. For me, at least. It wasn't any of the X-Men books. It wasn't the Titans. It wasn't Daredevil. Those were all very, you know, bestsellers. They had grown. I had kept pace. But G.I. Joe, man, I slept on that second week, that second month. I didn't get there in time. And there they are in their parkas on that cover. And that G.I. Joe number two, suddenly orders went through the roof. I got to have enough of three and four and five. And retailers adjusted their orders. And, you know, can I get more of three? Can I get more of four? Because the, the fever was in. Because, again, they're going to get caught short. But they were able to catch up. And issue two was the one that really caught everybody by surprise. But that first issue that hit comic book uh, direct market stores just exploded. Double-sized, Herb Trimpey, Bob McCloud, Mr. Larry Hama. Uh, I have so many different, you know, trade paperbacks, hardcovers. IDW has done such a great job reformatting. Um, all of the 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 early GI Joe adventures. I can only hope, and I'm certain certain that the new uh, you know licensor who who's going to be debuting new GI Joe books in the future will will keep that stuff around, keep that available because I, I buy it each and every time. But GI Joe, real American hero, the new age of best selling blockbuster, the GI Joe cartoon, the GI Joe toys, the GI Joe comic, all three firing on all cylinders, brought GI Joe back in spectacular fashion. There is a Toys That Made Us episode of this that goes deep, deep into everything that I'm sharing with you. You should watch that. My, its, relevance, its relevance to us today is in its a March launch. A huge comic book property was, uh, you know, reborn, rebranded to all new like sales success. The, the new G.I. Joe toys, I mean, l- literally in the last couple of years, they've been repackaging them. They've been reissuing brand new Hasbro, G.I. Joe's, all the different special labels they have, and they're having such tremendous success. Hasbro was such a monster with the Star Wars license, with the Transformers, with the G.I. Joe, and with with Marvel. Marvel, Star Wars, G.I. Joe, Transformers. Again, G.I. Joe is such a massive, massive success, and it's held for all these years, um, but but it has, to, it has to stay parked at number two because what is ahead of it? It's is so over overwhelming and overshadowing. Now here's the deal. Again, watch the toys that made us the GI Joe episode. It talks to everybody involved in the process. It gives you a much deeper dive into this. That's not what I'm here for today. This isn't a GI Joe episode. This is a March Madness episode. And in our March Madness, March second, nineteen eighty two, will go down in infamy as when GI Joe was reborn with mega hot sales across the board. Ratings for the cartoon, sales for the comics and toys. March second, March Madness. It is our um, beloved number two slot. Now, as we, we approach number one, you've heard of this book. You've heard of this creator many times for good reasons. Maybe what you didn't know is that this book, this movement started in March. I've told you many times I've, 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 there are episodes of this podcast called the numbers. Look them, look them up. If, if the title is the numbers and it's where I go through sales figures of the seventies of the early eighties. And I share with you as I always do, uh, there's a, there's a Twitter account called the Spinner Rack. It's called Rack Spinner. It 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 shares the day and date that all these books went on sale. Did I consult the Rack Spinner for this? I did. I absolutely did. <laughs> um, it it will uh, show you when some weeks you're like, wait, was every book a Batman book? 
in the in the late seventies, early eighties, there was Batman had a book that he uh, co-starred with other DC characters in called Brave and the Bold. He had a book that he co-starred with Superman in every week. I mean, every month called World's Finest. He had the Batman Family, which was a double-sized monthly book, which had Batman stories, Batwoman, Batgirl, Robin, Alfred, different villains, Batman Family. He was a featured player in the Justice League, okay? Uh, He had Detective Comics, and he had Batman Comics. And then you throw in all the assorted annuals and the different guest appearances. Batman versus the Hulk was the second Marvel DC uh, publication following their, their Superman and Spider-Man adventures that, that launched uh, the second characters to team up were Batman and Hulk. I mean, he was a big deal. He had been diminished. World's Finest canceled. Brave and the Bold canceled. Batman Family canceled. Uh, it was down to Detective and Batman, and Batman sales were slipping. Again, Titans, Legion, The Outsiders, uh, all manner of different books were outselling Batman. Uh, at the point that this book comes out, it is transformative. I, I, can't, I, I believe this embodies the word transformative. It changed the way we looked at this character. He had become passe. I've talked to you about Detective. I think Detective 600 is where Stephen King uh, wrote an editorial about he thought Batman was fading away. Well, that all changed, and he attributes that change to this book. Dark Knight Returns launched March 20th, 1986. Not only was it groundbreaking in its depiction of Batman, a retired Batman, who was, uh, you know, haunted by the death of Robin. He had retired. He was no longer Batman. He hadn't been seen in Gotham. Gotham had become mired in crime and, uh, and, and, and become kind of a disgusting, repulsive place, basically without the Cape Crusader on the prowl. The whole world changes uh, when Batman decides to put on, put on the cowl at the end, uh, midway through, uh, Dark Knight Returns number one. He's a thicker, older, smarter because he's older and thicker he has to be smarter he has to move differently he has to have different applications frank miller addressed the giant bat signal on his chest he gave him a he he told you why would somebody wear something so bold on their chest um he gave a female robin birth to a female robin carrie kelly was born vicious new depictions of the joker a a wild completely out of their depiction of Superman, a, a tragic vision of, of Green Arrow. Uh, this, was, this was as adrenaline-charged as any comic I've, I've ever experienced. I have done so many dedicated episodes. If you go through the podcast and look up Dark Knight, you'll see that I have given a lot of time to this and its sequels and the way that it impacted everything to follow. Batman became hot again. This depiction of Batman became everyone's favorite. People started drawing Batman differently. He was thicker. He was squattier. Art Adams, Jim Lee, uh, Mike Zeck, among among some of the notables, Jim Starlin. Everybody started to depict Batman the more that Frank had, the more in, in, in line with the style that Frank had established. Frank and Klaus Janssen, amazing. Now in later issues, you can see, especially if you get the kick-ass, there is a um, just amazing artist edition. Of, of the Dark Knight that has overlays that shows you how much Frank Miller went in and towards the end he just had a very definitive vision of how he wanted things to look. He he was even inking over Klaus Janssen's inks, supplying overlays to replace what had already been down. He was just very specific in how he wanted this handled. The Batmobile. No one had ever seen a Batmobile like this, but all of these new iterations of the Batmobile all started here. You know, Batmobile as a giant, you know, 
Humvee as a giant tank, all starting in the pages of Dark Knight. Um, Batman's kind of shifting morality, a more violent, a more vicious Batman. Um, Commissioner Gordon, the sons of Batman, everything in between. Dark Knight not only hit creatively, but the format. It didn't come out with staples. It came out glued. They called it the perfect bound format eventually because they needed a name for it. Because everyone, whether it was published by First Comics, Dark Horse Comics, Marvel Comics, they'd call it, that's the Dark Knight format. Well, ironically, the other publishers didn't want their stuff being called a DC branded name, a Dark Knight format. So, so the perfect bound, 48 pages glued with a square spine. So many things, you know, were to follow. The first to follow was, was Mike Grell. He did basically his Dark Knight-ish vision of Green Arrow called The Longbow Hunters. And it was perfect bound. And trust me, this is when I'm working in a comic store. I am there. I am taking the calls. The last two issues, issues three and four, uh, got late. They shipped later and later. And the phones blew up. People wanted this. Rolling Stone covered this. The major, major media covered this because it was such a different interpretation of Batman. Dark Knight Returns blew everybody's doors off. It is probably the most imitated work, the most, uh, you know, uh, copied body of work. When you look at a Batman drawn by Jim Lee or Tony Daniel or Greg Capullo or fill in the blank, you are looking at an influence that was established here in 1986 by Frank Miller and his groundbreaking transformational vision of Batman in Dark Knight Returns. It doesn't get bigger than Dark Knight Returns. March Madness, Dark Knight, number one, March 20th. Number two, G.I. Joe, March 2nd, 1982. Number three, another Frank Miller project, the Zack Snyder-directed vision of Frank Miller's epic graphic novel, 300, March 9th, 2007. Number four is the absolute reboot of Wally West as the Flash, all those great ideas, all of those great concepts, all of the ground floor was laid by Mike Barron and Jackson Geis in Flash number one, March 5th, 1987. And Titans number seven is March 5th, 1981. Slow it down. They don't always have to be throwing punches and fight, fight, fighting bad guys. They can be sitting around their apartments talking about their troubles with their parents, with their friends, walking through the city. George and Marv established that a day in the life, March 5th, 1981. And our honorable mention, it carried a cover date, but was certainly not on, on sale. But we're letting that split the hairs to say that Amazing Spider-Man number one, the launch of Spider-Man in his own title, was a cover dated March book, even though it came out in December. That gets our honorable mention of March Madness. You guys, March was a big month. Just on the back of Dark Knight and G.I. Joe right there, I can make the the argument. If you haven't experienced Flash 1, do it. You'll go, oh my gosh, this is really where the modern Flash began. It is 100%. 300, you just can't deny the impact and how it changed box office. It changed entertainment. And Titan 7 really was the, the signaling for so many people that you could go quiet and slow it down and still, uh, you know, completely entertain and satisfy your audience. So March Madness, it's more than basketball. It's more than Vegas gambling. We covered it here today on Observations. Some of these titles you've, you've heard us celebrate. Uh, some of them were new to you. I, I hope that you enjoyed this celebration of the month of March and the potency uh, that it has had on the legacy and history of comic books. Here at Observations, at the end of each and every episode, long-time listeners, you know this, I read the reviews that you leave 
for observations on all the various platforms. Sometimes you just send me a message. Many times I'm reading off the uh, dedicated Apple platform, which which logs by far the most reviews. If you were to leave me a review of the show, this is where I read them. I read them at the end of each and every show. And let me tell you something. Our our, our listener base is growing. Uh, we're getting um, just incredible uh, new 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 listeners. It, it, it's it's uh it's quite remarkable. And I know that it's because of you. It is 100% because you are out there sharing this podcast with um, with friends. Stores are playing them. Um, it's just it's just getting passed around, and I am so appreciative. I, I I'm so thankful that I never threw away any of my fanzines, my my old magazines, the old interviews, all of the stuff that I have logged that I'm able to kind of bring to you, mixing it up with my own personal 37 years experience in this business. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. I appreciate it so much. I know it is all because of you. Today's review comes from Dustin Whitney at, at the name B Whitney 629 uh, leaves us a very generous review says class is in session gives us five stars here's the deal when you guys leave a review and you give us a high ranking it helps the platform it helps elevate our profile in this incredible podcast space so I really appreciate it and this is uh, an incredibly generous and kind review class is in session five stars listening to Mr. Life I'll discuss his wealth of knowledge in all things comic books is an absolute pleasure. I am new to the podcast, but I've been listening to the backlog at the end of each new show. I feel like I'm back in school learning the history of comics, but in a way that is fun and is addictive. Thank you for sharing with us listeners the knowledge you have obtained in your almost four decades in comics. Holy crap, has it almost been four decades? It has. Look, as I said at the top of the show, you may have come to comic books through streaming, through films, through video games, through cartoons, uh, I came to comics through comic books and have watched them just, you know, become this incredible forest in in pop culture and dominate pop culture. I mean, right now you could say Disney is the number one entertainment company, but the number one brand within Disney is is Marvel. I, I did not think I would live in a day where Marvel would outshine Star Wars, but here we are, and it does, and it has, and and it's that kind of stuff that I love. You know, just walking back through time, and 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 again, like I said at the beginning of the show, when I embraced marvel i was like oh man i'm about 10 12 years behind but who knew that as the decades would go on i look back and i'm you know i i've got 40 50 years of of now you know wealth of marvel comics and dc comics that that started in 1974 and 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 turns out i was at, at the dawn i was really at the dawn of this age uh i was right at the end of the silver age at the beginning of the bronze age and who who knows how many ages that we have passed through but 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 Dustin Whitney, B. Whitney, uh, B. Whitney, 629, I cannot thank you enough. Thank you for that generous uh, review and statement and 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 just um, for showing love to the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for sharing it with us. I, I love sharing it with everybody else. Again, leave your reviews at, 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 at the Apple uh, platform or if you want to just reach out and, and wherever you will leave a positive comment, it'll find me. And I'll share at the end of each and every episode on, on social media. You can reach out and find me on Twitter. Let's do Twitter first. I am at Robert Liefeld, the full name, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. I have a blue check. I know those are whack. I'm not paying for it. I've had it for years. I'm so excited that I have it. It's, it's a verification of sorts. I know they're becoming kind of you know controversial, but at, at this time, it lets you know that, that I am really Rob Liefeld. There are imitators. 
Um, some of them are quite funny. Some of them are quite lame, but the real Rob Liefeld resides at Robert Liefeld with a blue check on Twitter. I'd love to talk to you. I love our back and forth, our interactions, the messages, the DMs, all of it. I see them. I read them. I try and get back to each and every one of you. Thank you for following me on Twitter at Robert Liefeld on Instagram it is where I'm doing my, uh, my, my photo dump diary of my life, what I'm drawing, what I'm eating, what I'm doing, what I'm visiting, where I am with my family. I put it on Instagram. Uh, I'm Rob Liefeld over there. Again, same thing, blue check verification. That's really me you're talking to. I get your DMs. I get your messages. I get um, all your replies. Thank you so much for reaching out and interacting with me on Instagram at Rob Liefeld. On Facebook, we have a kick-ass group. I'd love for you to join us. Uh, it's growing leaps and bounds every day. It's Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond. It is administered and run by myself and a gentleman named Terry Sala. S-A-L-A. I tell you this because it's one of the two of us that'll click you through once you uh, put in your request. And that's how you know you're at the right Rob Liefeld uh, group. And again, Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond. We talk about all the subjects on the podcast. We talk comics. There's drawing contests. There's art being shared. I'd love for you to join us over on Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond over at Facebook. I am on an app called Whatnot. It's a killer collectible app that is blowing up where you can buy sports cards, trading cards, um, role-playing games, uh, toys, Funkos, comics on my feeds when I go live. And generally I go live twice a week, um, very often on Wednesday and Saturdays. But if you follow me, I'm Rob Liefeld on whatnot. If you get the app, you download it and you follow me and you um, attend my live streams. It is me talking to you for two hours, three hours, four hours. Sometimes they go long. Sometimes I don't even sell anything for hours on end. It's just. I just, I, I get caught up in yapping. Many people have said it's like an extension of this podcast, but I would love for you to join us over on whatnot. Follow me at Rob Liefeld on my live streams. I have custom signatures, uh, signed comic books, Funkos, toys, and original art, all of it. We have exclusives that we've done with whatnot. We did a Deadpool New Mutants exclusive, a Spider-Man exclusive. We've done a Brigade exclusive, all of these whatnot exclusives. We have foil exclusives, chromium exclusives, a lot of exclusive books that are only available when I am streaming live. That's the only place you can get them. So join us. Follow me, Rob Liefeld on whatnot. If you follow me, you'll get an alert as to my next show. I invite you to follow me and interact with me. I would love to see you there. Little family plug here. I, uh, my, my son, uh, 20 years old, is an actor. He is on uh, currently two different projects, Wolfpack on Paramount+. Plus. Uh, the end of the season is coming. You can you can catch up, get Paramount+. Plus. Watch Wolfpack and 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 watch. Uh, I, I won't talk more about it until the season concludes. But Chase Liefeld has emerged. His he is. Uh, we're super proud of him. It's hard to be in the arts. It's hard to book gigs. It's hard to get a job, especially one as good as this one. And so, uh, follow him on Wolfpack on Paramount Plus. And there is a show. There is a uh, a movie called Chank and Dunk on Disney Plus. It's coming out March tenth. Do not miss it is like the great sports comedies of old uh airing on disney plus really great sports comedy high school uh basketball movie check it out disney chank and dunk airs march 10th on disney plus you bet your bottom dollar that i'm going to promote this stuff we are in the family way again being in the arts is exciting it's frightening all at the same time chank and dunk disney plus wolf plaque paramount plus if it's got a plus chase liefeld is acting on it okay uh that's my, 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 my proud papa moment. And, and at the end of every show, each and every show, 
I encourage you to feed yourself spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and physically. Uh, I encourage you get some art, some music, some books, some graphic novels, some comic books, streaming shows, movies, kick back, take some time out. It's like your artistic cheat meal. You got to get in that recliner, get in that beanbag. Like I, like I have recliners, I have beanbags, so I know what I'm talking about. And enjoy that, binge that show, watch that movie, watch that, you know, uh, uh, film you've been, you, you've been waiting to see, read a group of comics like I do, read graphic novels, get, get artist editions, whatever, feed your artistic soul. It will feed you emotionally, uh, spiritually, mentally, physically. Now I, I always tell you, I got to do this. I mix it with a great fun food. Uh, I, you know, that may be an enchilada. That may be uh, uh, a pizza. That may be a hamburger, a hot dog, uh, a Philly cheesesteak. Okay. A pastrami sandwich. <laughs> maybe it's a candy bar. Maybe it's a Reese's big cup. Maybe it's a Hershey's. Maybe it's a Mr. Good bar, whatever it is. Maybe it's ice cream. Maybe it's a big damn ice cream sundae or a milkshake. Hey, you got to take time to just break from the grind. We all have incredible amounts of responsibilities. And occasionally you just got to take that me time. And, and it is the art and, and, and mixing it with great food. Maybe, it, maybe you're going to a restaurant with your friends. And that's what I'm talking about here. But take time for yourself. Make time for yourself. And, and, and feed your soul. And, and, and you will be better off for it. And the guy who is rooting for you is right here on the mic. I am rooting for you each and every time. Each and every time out. I am hoping uh, that you succeed. And that you are doing great. And that your family is doing great. And tell you what. Come back around. See me. I'll be here. And, and, and waiting for you. Uh, so that we can talk again. Because we most certainly. Absolutely. And inevitably. will talk again. Real soon.